you so much. <clears throat> Good evening, everyone. When Tony and I uh, hit upon a schedule, a time in October when we could do that, of course, none of us knew that tonight there would be this uh, presidential debate. I think we're probably running with, there's some competition there that we have, but um, I think you're frankly in the better place here than having to uh, go through that uh, hour and a half again. I would like you to think of this as a diversion from the, uh, from the, uh, uh, this campaigning. I'm tired of it. I want to vote and get done with it and get on with life, aren't you? Isn't that about the way you folk feel? Well, we're glad you're here. We're gl delighted ourselves to be here. Esteemed members of, Re of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, visiting pastors, and here's one here. How many pastors are here tonight beside the pastors here? Oh, I know you, Pastor. You're the one visiting pastor. We're glad to have you. And uh, members and friends of RPC. Before I begin this evening's address, I have to tell you how honored I am to have been asked by your pastor in church session to bring this series of addresses on the attributes of God, <clears throat> which I understand, I'm defining that word attribute for you, which I understand to be ascriptions to God that God's self-revelation in Holy Scripture declares are true of him. I want to express my appreciation publicly to the pastors and to the session now for their kind invitation, and I want to ask you all to pray for me and to trust God with me that by this series of addresses, he will bless his word about himself above all that we could ask or think and that we would all begin in a new and fresh way tonight to change the world. To let us uh, pray uh, before I say anything else. <clears throat> Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your precious and fallible word revelation to us of your divine nature and perfections. Grant us ears tonight truly to hear that revelation, both tonight and the following addresses of this series. Remove any scales from our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law and open our hearts to believe and to love your truth. Enable me as one who professes to be a scribe in the kingdom of God to bring forth treasures both new and old from your word for the enduring blessing of these your people and for the infinitely worthy cause of Jesus Christ in whose name I now pray. Amen. As I begin this series of addresses on the attributes of God, the God of Holy Scripture, that I'm entitling, Behold Your God, 
based on Isaiah's prophetic injunction to preachers of the gospel uh, to make him known, let me first take a few minutes and give you what, in my opinion, is a primary reason such a topic is absolutely essential. Occasionally, I I reminded the congregations that I pastored that historically, Presbyterian congregations such as you folk, unwilling to suffer theologically foolish preaching lightly, have rarely called ignorant pastors to their pulpits. Presbyterians just don't do that. And that's right and proper. But then I've pointed out to them that a theologically literate ministry will never tolerate an ignorant laity either. I expected them through my pulpit ministry, I said, to grow in their knowledge of their God so that they could in turn correctly minister to others. And in this present context, this is just to say that the foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of God's perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. I would even contend that more than any other topic in these times, pastors need to introduce their congregations to the one living and true God because nothing is more needful for God's people in this day of rampant theological illiteracy than to know what their God is actually like. For all of our problems, for all of our problems and the respective solutions to them are ultimately theological. Therefore, a true knowledge of God is indispensable to our soul's eternal health and to a sound philosophy of life here and now. So I'm praying that we will all grow spiritually as we think about the God who is there, who has spoken to, his, spoken to us his word from another world, <coughs> and, who, and who, after all, is truly the ultimate who's who. Beloved people, covenant with God to learn all you can about him from his inscripturated revelation through this series of addresses and the uh, other studies that you will do regularly, and then resolve to teach what you learn. Thank you so much, my dear brother. Our Lord said something about a cup of cold water will have its reward. Thank you. While it will ever be the case that it is God alone who gives the increase, bathe your entire labor for him in your fervent prayer to him that you may be used by him both to plant his word and to water it in the souls of needy people. Well, now let us begin our address this evening. Turn with me now if you have your Bibles. Uh, to the first of this evening's texts, John chapter 4, 23 through 25. 
Now, I'm going to be giving to you, well, let me make this explanation now. I'm going to be reading to you a lot of scripture this evening. For the sake of time, I will be eliminating the, the references. I'm not going to say every time Deuteronomy 4, 35. I'll just read the text. And any who want to know the references or want the references after the address, you feel free to come and I'll give you all of the references that I will be reading. In John chapter 4, our Lord speaking says, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, and that implies, doesn't it, that there will be false worshipers, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such ones to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's my own private translation, but I think it's surely close enough to yours that you followed along. Before I get into the body of this address, I want to now issue one caveat. You will soon notice that unlike the schoolmen of the late Middle Ages, who give the impression at times that they know so much about God that they even know what he had for breakfast yesterday, I make no such claim. Rather, I will simply attempt to make clear what I think the Bible teaches about God on each selected topic. I will attempt to go as far as the Bible goes, and where it stops, there I will stop. In my opinion, this is the safest way to approach the several subjects of this series. So with this understanding between us, let us begin with this following basic assertion. Here it is. The Christian faith is a monotheistic faith, and its monotheism is expressly declared and everywhere assumed by the Old and the New Testaments. Listen to some of these scripture passages. The Lord is God. There is no one else besides him. Yahweh is the God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me. There is no other God. There is one God and there is no one beside him. There is one God. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God except one. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And finally, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. This one God, according to Holy Scripture, needs nothing outside himself in order to be fully God. He is self-existent, which means that he necessarily exists eternally. He is self-contained, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, and self-revealing whose self-revelation is self-attesting, 
self-authenticating, and self-validating. Before he created the universe, when he, the triune God, existed all alone, his understanding, his energies, and his love found their proper object within the persons of the Godhead to his own perfect satisfaction and happiness. Holy Scripture teaches us that this one living and true God did not create the universe out of any need to complement himself in order to be God. For he was exactly the same after his creative activity as before. He was under no constraint from outside himself, no obligation from outside himself, no necessity save to himself to create. That he chose to do so was purely a sovereign act on his part caused by nothing outside himself. All this is to say that he created this universe solely because he willed to do so and for the purpose of glorifying himself by the redemptive activity that he would work out on the stage of this small planet. Now, in these addresses, when I use the word God, I will intend by that word this one living and true God of the Bible. It is the existence of this God alone that I confess. With reference to the claimed existence of any other God as the true God, I am not simply an agnostic. I am a convinced atheist with reference to any other God. I deny that any other gods exist save as idolatrous creations in the minds of sinful men who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It is this God we talk about. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as pastors already noted, begins its instructions about this one living and true God in its response to its question, what is God, by declaring, God is a spirit. So this is where I will begin our series on the attributes of God. This four-word English statement is based upon the three-word statement of Jesus, in the Greek text of John 4:24, uh, Panuma, spirit, Hathaos, spirit is the God. And what we need to do first is to determine the meaning of Jesus' use of this word Panuma without the article. It has no article. Jesus makes this statement, you will recall, in the context of his discussion with the woman at the well in Samaria. She turned the discussion to the question of the location where people should worship God, whether in Samaria or in Jerusalem. Jesus responded by telling her that the worship of God does not require that one be present in either place. This is because true worship has to do not with a geographic location, but with the nature of the being of God and the worshiper's inner spiritual condition. So I concur with Leon Morris's wise suggestion 
that we should omit the indefinite article in our English translation. And most modern good English translations do omit the article the and just simply say God is spirit. Apparently it was not Jesus' intent to teach here that God is a spirit in the sense that he is one spirit among many. Though that is true enough, rather he intended to underscore the truth that God's being is of the nature of spirit and is therefore in no way restricted to spatial locations. And while it is true that in this particular context, Jesus has specifically the Father in mind, that is to say God the Father is spirit, this statement is equally true of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, which is just to say all three persons of the Godhead are essentially one undivided spirit. I would suggest that the word spirit here is simply theological shorthand for two other attributes of God. First, to say that the triune God is spirit is to say that God is personal. You see, Brothers and sisters, according to the scriptural usage of the word, there is no such thing as impersonal spirit. To be spirit is to be person. To be spirit is to be personal. And what does it mean to be personal? Well, to be personal is to be unlike the impersonal stone or planet, it means to be self-conscious, self-determining, living, and active. And the triune God of the Bible is all these things and more, self-conscious, self-determining, living, active, intelligent, and affectionate. He is anything but inert impersonalness. He is the living and active creator and architect of the universe. He is the beneficent provider of his creature's needs. He is the lawgiver and just judge of mankind. He is the advocate of the poor and the oppressed. He is an empathetic counselor, the suffering servant, and the triumphant deliverer of his people. He is a dragon slayer. By the way, all of these have references. If you want any of these references afterwards, feel free. I'll give them to you. He is a dragon slayer, a bridegroom, a husband, a king, a man of war, a builder and maker, a shepherd, a physician, and much, much more. And as personal spirit, God relates to us in an I-you way, not in an I-it way. We are not things to him, and he is not to be a thing to us. But right here, I want to issue a caution. God's personalness 
should not be taken to mean that God is one person. For while it is true that God generally refers, prefers as a literary convention to speak in his revelation to his people as an I, a first person pronoun I, see for example his I am of Exodus 3, only rarely speaking as a plural subject employing the first person plural we or us, yet in the depth of his being God does speak within himself and sometimes to us as a plural subject, one of the many evidences in Scripture that the biblical God is actually tri-personal. For example, Genesis 1, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 3, God says, The man and the woman have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In Genesis eleven seven, God says, let us go down and give men different languages. Isaiah 6, 8, God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so on and so forth. Therefore, in view of the fact that there are three persons in the Godhead, it is better to say that our God is personal than to say that he is a person. He is not a person. He is tri-personal. In the depth of the divine being of the Godhead exist eternally three persons who stand in an I, you, he, essential and personal relationship of love with each other. And any pastor to say from the pulpit that God is a person is actually grazing the rim of if he has not already crossed over into the modalistic heresy. I offer no apology for mentioning here in our first discussion of the attributes of God the truth of the divine of the triune character of the Christian God. For in a very real sense, although we do not normally use the term to describe it, God's triunity is another <clears throat> of his distinctive attributes or marks. I will be mentioning <clears throat> his triunity right along as we move through our addresses. Indeed, I will reserve my last address for that particular topic. For I take seriously something John Calvin writes in his Institutes. He says there, God designates himself in addition to his spiritual essence, by another special mark to distinguish himself more precisely from idols. For he so proclaims himself the sole God as to offer himself at the same time to be contemplated in three persons. Unless we grasp these, now I want you to listen very carefully to what Calvin now says, unless we grasp these, the three-person character or nature of God, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brain to the exclusion of the true God. Note Calvin's last words, to the exclusion of the true God. I hope you got Calvin's point. Calvin had apprehended that the tri-personality of God is not an idea that is to be added 
to one's already complete idea of God, it is a truth that enters into the very idea of the one living and true God without which he cannot be conceived in the truth of his being. In other words, since the only God who is there is in point of fact a trinity, if we think and talk about God and his attributes as if he were simply an undifferentiated divine monad, we are, as a matter of fact, thinking of a God that has no existence. We are thinking of, well, how does Calvin put it? We're thinking of the bare and empty name of God that is not the true God at all. What this father of the magisterial reformation of the 16th century is saying is this. If we do not give due regard to God's triunity as we reflect upon him, we have created for ourselves and are talking about an idol. Gregory of Nazianzus captures my point here well when he states, I cannot think of the one, but I am immediately surrounded by the splendor of the three, nor can I clearly discover the three, but I am suddenly carried back to the one. This is the main reason that the other two monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism and Islam, this is the main reason why both are monotheistic faiths are nonetheless both idolatrous faiths. Their respective gods are not the true God. Their gods are idols because, among other reasons, they are not triune. So we must never think or talk about the God of Christianity unless at the same time we recognize that we are thinking and talking about the triune God. To talk first about God per se, giving no thought to his triunity, According to Calvin, and I agree with him, is to talk about an idol. And in our present text, Jesus illustrates for us that for which Calvin is contending. For though he says with no apparent specification, God is spirit, the context of his remark makes it clear that he is thinking triunely and intends God the Father, the first person, of the holy triune Godhead. We would urge first then, when we read or when we say that God, the triune God is spirit, we're saying first then that God as spirit is personal or more specifically, tri-personal. The second thing that God as spirit means here is that he is non-corporeal. You know the Latin corpus, corpus Christi, body, corpus, body, non-corporeal. When you say that God is spirit, we're saying that he has no body. It's a statement of negation, granted, a statement of negation, 
we're saying what he isn't. It's a statement of negation rather than of affirmation, I admit. But this way of talking about God, designated by the church fathers as the via negationis, the way of negation, that identifies what God is by declaring what he is not, by means of negating attributes of the finite order is true of him, a way, incidentally, that Louis Burkhoff in his systematics does not think is the proper method of dogmatic theology because it takes its starting point in man. But I contend that the way of negation the Apostle Paul himself endorsed when describing God by his many uses of what we call in, in our Greek classes the privative alpha word. Let me explain. The first letter of the Greek alphabet, the alpha, is often attached in Greek to adjectives on the front. And the purpose of putting that adjective on the front of adjectives is to negate the meaning of the word. And Paul, it's not just in English, it's in Greek. Paul uses these privative alpha words, these nouns and adjectives, again and again and again. Listen, he says that God is, this is a privative alpha word, immortal, unsearchable, incomprehensible, indescribable, invisible, unapproachable, unchangeable. And before Paul, David had declared that God's greatness or majesty is unfathomable. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, which is just to say that he is relentless or ceaseless in his guardian protection of his own. And God himself employs expressions of negation as self-descriptions, declaring, for example, he says of himself that he does not grow tired. That is, he is indefatigable. He does not grow weary. He is untiring. He says that his understanding is unsearchable. And he tells us that he does not change That is, he is immutable. Hence, God's non-corporeality means that he is without without body, body parts, or bodily passions, such as hunger for food or the desire to satisfy a sexual desire. He is pure and unqualifiedly non-corporeal being. We know that this is the meaning of spirit from Luke 24, where in response to the disciples' assessment that the risen Lord was a spirit, Jesus responded, look at my hands and my feet. It is I I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and blood, which is a statement of negation. A spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see, I have. So, my beloved, when we say that God is spirit, <clears throat> we should mean not only that he is tripersonal, but also that no property of matter 
created matter may properly be ascribed to his being. And this means in turn that God as spirit has no extension in space, neither as a vast solid nor as a measureless ocean of liquid nor as an immense volume of gas expanded beyond limit, extension in all these forms is a property wholly irrelevant to and inappropriately attributed to God as divine spirit. As spirit, he has no material size or dimensions, even infinite ones. That is to say, we should not think of God as being infinitely large materially for it is not a part of God but all of God who is in every place in the universe nor should we think of him as in any sense small materially for no place in the universe can surround him or contain him indeed the heaven of heavens cannot contain him he has no material weight no material mass no material bulk, no material parts, no material form, no material taste, and no material smell. He is not like atomic or cosmic energy or vapor or steam or air, all of which are created things. He is not even like our spirits, For our spirits are created spirits that can and do exist in only one finite place at a time, namely within us. We must simply say then that God is spirit. And that whatever else this may mean, it means at the very least that his being as tri-personal, non-corporeal being is unlike any being about which we know in this material universe. His being as tri-personal, non-corporeal spirit is uncreated being, and everything else is created being. We cannot picture his non-material being. We cannot imagine his non-material nature, and he forbids us to try particularly when he informs us, as we shall see in later addresses, that he is omnipresent, never had a beginning, is infinite, eternal, and immutable in all of his attributes, and that he is triune. In short, his tripersonal, non-corporeal nature as spirit is simply incomprehensible to us. And I find it both intriguing and highly instructive that in Ezekiel 1, the nearer the prophet approached God, the more his descriptive words of God begin to reflect God's incomprehensibility. Listen, there came a voice, Ezekiel writes, from above the expanse over the living creatures' heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a sapphire stone that had the appearance of a throne. 
and high above the appearance of the throne was an appearance like that of a man. I saw that what appeared to be his waist looked like glowing metal, like the appearance of fire, and that from there down was like the appearance of fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance about him. This, he writes, was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Note that, now note that while the record itself is comprehensible to us, what Ezekiel saw he describes by employing a number of similes, something looked like a sapphire stone that had the appearance of a throne, then the light about that likeness had the appearance like that of a rainbow, and the one who, appe- <clears throat> the one who appeared high and above it <clears throat> was like a man, which man-like figure Ezekiel then informs us was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Note that this figure he described was not the Lord as such, not the glory of the Lord, not the likeness of the glory of the Lord, but the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And beholding that, he fell upon his face. And we, too, are lost here in adoring wonder. Quite properly, Blaise Pascal, French mathematician and philosopher, said, Man must not see nothing at all when he contemplates the being of God, nor must he see enough to think that he possesses God, but he must see enough to know that he cannot comprehend him. We can only say that as non-corporeal being, he is invisible, another negation, to physical sight. He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No one has ever seen him, nor ever will. And that as non-corporeal being, that is, as one who in his being is without material parts, he is also Indivisible, yet another negation, what some theologians refer to as his simplicity, and by using this term they simply mean that he is not composed of parts. It is true, of course, that the Bible speaks of God as having a face, eyes, an ear, an arm, a hand, feet, and so on. But in light of the Bible's teaching concerning his non-corporeal nature, we must construe such language not literally, but metaphorically. The purpose of these anthropomorphisms being to assist us better to understand that God is truly personal. Well, so much for the theology of Jesus' statement. God is spirit. He tells us, and by that, he means that God is personal and non-corporeal. So much for that. Let's relate all of this to us now in a practical way. First, it is this fact of God's being as spirit that underlies the second commandment that prohibits every attempt to fashion an image of God. God says in Exodus 20, 
Do not make graven. That would be carved or sculpted. Do not make graven images of me of any kind or any likeness. That would be painted likeness of me of anything that is in heaven above. That is within the heavenly bodies, clouds, lightnings, birds. Or that is in the earth beneath. That is man, animals, trees, stones, mountains, etc. Or that is in the water under the earth. That is fish, coral reefs, and so on. He continues, you must never worship or bow down to them. For, thy, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not share your affection with any other God. That is to say, any other image or likeness is not God. It is another God. And Moses reminded the second generation of the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt, <clears throat> you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol, an image of any shape. To think of God's being in terms of anything in the created universe is to misrepresent him, <clears throat> to limit him, to think of him as less or other than he really is. This is the reason God's jealousy is given as the reason for the prohibition against making images of him. He is jealous to protect his glory. He will not share it with anyone or anything else. He eagerly seeks worshipers who think of him as he is, as tri-personal, non-corporeal spirit, and who worship him as such. For to worship anything else is idolatry, and he is angered when his glory is diminished by men falsely misrepresenting him by a likeness to anything in this created universe. The Roman Catholic Church lives daily with a prime example of a violation of the Second Commandment in its highly acclaimed Sistine Chapel in the Vatican and delights to display it. For there in the chapel ceiling, Michelangelo has painted God the Father as a bearded, white-haired, elderly man reaching out with his outstretched hand and finger to touch Adam in order to give him life. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel may display great art, but it also exhibits great disobedience to the law of God. The result of this and every other similar effort is to fashion an image that is a distortion of God and is thus blasphemous and idolatrous. Pope Gregory I declared, however, that such images are the books of the educated, of the uneducated. It helps the uneducated. John Calvin rightly responded, bodily images are unworthy of God's majesty because they diminish the fear of him in men and increase error. They are not necessary, Calvin continued, if the church would only do its job of preaching and teaching, quote, those in authority in the church turned over to idols the office of teaching for no other reason than that they themselves were mute. They had nothing to say. 
Paul testifies that by the true preaching of the gospel, Christ is depicted before our eyes as crucified. From this one fact, he says, the uneducated could learn more about God than a thousand crosses of wood or stone. God, and specifically God the Father, dear hearts, is not a white-haired elderly man. God the Father is spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, that is, in spiritual worship that is according to truth. The Christian must ever be solicitous, never even to think of God as having any material characteristics. So if you ask me what God looks like, I will not just say I'm not sure or I don't know. I will say he has no looks in the sense you intend by your question and I will insist that you give up every attempt to conceive of his being beyond what is implied in the word spirit, namely his tri-personal non-corporeality. But I can and will say this to you, and I rejoice with an inexpressible joy when I say it. And this is the second application that I want to make this evening. That he who hungers and thirsts to know God and what he is like can know him through saving faith in Jesus Christ. For he who by faith knows God's incarnate Son knows the Father. And he who has seen Christ with the eyes of faith has seen the Father, he tells us. He is the Word who existed with God the Father before God made anything at all. He is the one who is supreme over all, who sits today at the Father's right hand. By the way, the Father doesn't have a right hand. That simply means that that, that the triune God has enthroned the Son in the place of highest honor in the heavens. He is the one through whom the Father created everything in heaven and earth. He is the one who made the things we can see and the things that we cannot see. He's the one who holds all creation together, which means that the so-called laws of atomic physics are actually the sustaining, adhering work of the Son of God. The one in whom it pleased God that in him all the fullness of deity should dwell bodily. He's the one who would reconcile this fallen world to God, making peace by means of the blood of his cross. All of this means that the only God who is, the God who revealed himself redemptively in history, is therefore Christ-like. 